Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Cabrera, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 26th through Saturday, the 28th, feature guest conductor Nikolai Schnepp-Snyder. The program includes the Blumina movement from Mahler's First Symphony, with cellist Chen Huang, Hebraic Rhapsody for Cello and Orchestra Shalomo by Ernest Bloch, and after intermission, Mahler's First Symphony. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Ernest Bloch's Shalomo, Hebraic Rhapsody for Solo, Cello and Orchestra, a work lasting about 20 minutes. Swiss by birth, trained in Brussels, Frankfurt, Dresden, and Paris, and first recognized in the United States, Ernest Bloch has come to be known primarily as a Jewish composer. But as Yehuda Menuhin, one of his strongest champions, noted, Bloch was a great composer without any narrowing qualifications whatever. Bloch was always interested in exploring other lands and other cultures through music. One of his first compositions was an oriental symphony he wrote at the age of 15, but he soon came to realize that it was his own Jewish roots that spoke most strongly to him. Many of Bloch's best-known works, particularly those written in the second decade of the 20th century, are dominated by his Jewish consciousness, a voice, as he wrote, which seemed to come from far beyond myself, far beyond my parents. In the end, Bloch admitted that he couldn't distinguish to what extent his music was Jewish and to what extent it was just Ernest Bloch. Bloch was not interested in authenticity. He was after a different kind of truth. I do not propose or desire to attempt a reconstruction of the music of the Jews, he wrote, or to base my work on melodies more or less authentic. I am not an archaeologist. I believe that the most important thing is to write good and sincere music, my music. It is rather the Hebrew spirit that interests me, the complex, ardent, agitated soul that vibrates for me in the Bible. After the start of World War I, Bloch was drawn to the book of Ecclesiastes. At first, he began to sketch a work for voice and orchestra, but he recognized that the languages he knew best, French, German, and English, weren't appropriate, and he didn't have sufficient command of Hebrew. After he heard the Russian cellist Alexander Baryansky play, however, Bloch began to re-envision the work for an infinitely grander and more profound voice that could speak all languages, the cello. The piece now came together quickly, and when it was time to give it a title, Bloch picked Shalomo, the Hebrew name for Solomon in German transliteration, who, according to legend, wrote the words of Ecclesiastes. If one likes, one may imagine that the voice of the solo cello is the voice of King Shalomo, Bloch later wrote. The complex voice of the orchestra is the voice of his age, his world, his experience. There are times when the orchestra seems to reflect his thoughts as the solo cello voices his words. The introduction, which contains the germs of several essential motifs, is the plaint, the lamentation. Nothing is worth the pain it causes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. An emotional, nearly a psychological reaction. Bloch writes three large paragraphs linked by powerful cello monologues in which the lone Solomon ponders the lessons of life. Even as Shlomo explores the seductive rhythms of languorous dance or the exotic panoply of an oriental world, the work is clouded by pessimism and despair. 
Even the darkest of my works and with hope, Bloch later wrote, this work alone concludes in a complete negation. But the subject demanded it. The only passage of light falls after the meditation of Shalomo. I found the meaning of this fragment 15 years later when I used it in the sacred service. The words are words of hope and ardent prayer that one day men will know their brotherhood and live in harmony and peace. Words by composer Ernest Bloch and program notes by Philip Huscher on Bloch's Hebraic Rhapsody, Shalomo. And now on to Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 1, a work lasting about 62 minutes. When Alma Schindler first met Gustav Mahler, whom she later married, she could only remember how much she had disliked his first symphony. She was not alone. The history of this symphony, even into relatively recent times, is one of misunderstanding and rejection. The first performance in Budapest in 1889 was greeted with indifference, bewilderment, and in the words of a local critic, a small but for all that audible element of opposition. Mahler seldom understood the animosity his music aroused. A few years later, after Alma had taken his name and converted to the cause, Mahler wrote to her after conducting the first symphony, Sometimes it sent shivers down my spine. Damn it all, where do people keep their ears and their hearts if they can't hear that? But as Alma knew, people didn't always feel what Mahler felt. For years, the first symphony led an unhappy existence, greeted by chilly receptions wherever it was played, and plagued by the composer's continual fussing, both over details and the big picture. No other symphony gave him so much trouble. He couldn't even decide if this music was a symphonic poem, a program symphony, or a symphony plain and simple, or whether it should contain four or five movements. Figuring all that out was not an act of indecisiveness, but of exploration. And by the time Mahler published this music as his Symphony No. 1, some 15 years after he began it, he had not only discovered for himself what a symphony could be, but he had changed the way we have defined that familiar word ever since. We begin in Kassel in 1884 with Johanna Richter, a soprano destined for fame not as a singer, but as the inspiration for Mahler's first true masterpiece, The Songs of a Wayfarer, and as a stimulus for this symphony. Mahler had gone to Kassel as a conductor, but found the working conditions unsatisfactory. Whatever he missed in his work, he gained in life and love. Johanna Richter, or more precisely, unreturned love, unlocked Mahler's deepest feelings that year and set his course, not as an accomplished conductor, which he surely was, but as a composer of vision and daring. It took the rest of the musical establishment a while to see it that way. Mahler followed an unorthodox path in getting from Johanna Richter to his first symphony, but it's one he would choose again and again when writing music. And it's the process, as much as the composer himself, that gives Mahler's symphonies their unconventional stamp. Henry James once described a novelist as someone on whom nothing is lost. For Mahler, that defined a symphonist. The first symphony is indebted in various ways to Johanna Richter, The Wayfarer Songs, 
Incidental music Mahler wrote for a production of Josef Victor von Scheffel's Der Trompeter von Säckingen, a familiar children's round, the wife of Karl Maria von Weber's grandson, yodeling, military fanfares, an early 19th century woodcut, cafe music, the opening of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Birdsong at Dawn, a love song he wrote in 1880, Revelry, the German Landler, and sights and sounds and feelings we will never know. Since Mahler hadn't written a large, purely orchestral work before, it took him some time to find the right way to bring all his resources together and to make a convincing whole of so many parts. In the meantime, life presented new choices, and love was reawakened by Marion von Weber, the wife of the composer's grandson. The piece Mahler introduced in Budapest on November 20, 1889, was billed as a symphonic poem in two parts, with three movements in part one and two in part two. Only the funeral march was labeled to help listeners coming to the music cold. Today, it's easy to see that it wasn't the lack of labels or comments, but simply the staggering range and provocative juxtaposition of materials that bothered the first audience. For the next performances in Hamburg and Weimar in 1893 and 94, Mahler drew up a descriptive program, gave titles to the movements, and called the whole piece Titan, a tone poem in symphonic form after the popular novel by Jean Paul. For Berlin, in 1896, Mahler again changed his mind, dropped the titles and the programmatic explanation, omitted the second movement, Blumina, that opens this week's concert, and settled on Symphony in D Major for Large Orchestra. In Vienna, in 1900, a notice in the program indicated that Mahler wanted no explanatory notes of any kind. Why such indecision? In March 1896, at the time of the Berlin performance, Mahler wrote to the critic Max Marschalk about adding the program in the first place. At the time, my friends persuaded me to provide a kind of program for the D major symphony in order to make it easier to understand. Therefore, I had thought up this title and explanatory material after the actual composition. I left them out for this performance, not only because I think they are quite inadequate and do not even characterize the music accurately, but also because I have learned through past experiences how the public has been misled by them. Still, Mahler's first symphony wasn't understood. Critics in Frankfurt complained about the program. Those in Berlin missed it. At this same time, Strauss was writing Spiegel, Thus Spake Zarathustra, and Ein Heldenleben, which begged the same questions. Even though Mahler finally decided to present the symphony as abstract music with no story to tell, he wrestled with the same dilemma again in writing symphonies numbers 2 and 3 and came to slightly different conclusions each time. Mahler's final thoughts on this music were published in 1899 as Symphony No. 1 in Four Movements, and that's how it's known today. The first movement begins like the sound of nature, with fanfares and bird calls sounding from the distance over the gentle hum of the universe, tuned to A natural and scattered over seven octaves. The method is one learned by every composer since Beethoven, whose Ninth Symphony opens with bits and pieces that gradually become music. 
It took Mahler a long time to get the opening to sound the way he wanted it. Every effect is precisely calculated, with consideration given not only to the most delicate shades of dynamics, but to the placement of the players on and off the stage. A cuckoo, unlike Beethoven's cuckoo in the Pastoral Symphony, it sings the interval of a fourth instead of a third, eventually pushes the sounds of nature into a lovely rolling melody. That tune, beginning with the cuckoo's descending fourth, comes from the second Wayfarer song, Ging heut morgen übers Feld, I went through the fields this morning, and its proud walking music takes Mahler a long way. Mahler reinvents the song as he goes, reshuffling phrases and motifs so that even someone who knows the song finds this music continually fresh. Next comes a brief scherzo set in motion by the foot-stomping dances and yodeling that Mahler heard and had already put to good use in one of his first songs, Hans und Greta, in 1880. Dance around, around, the song goes. Let whoever is happy weave in and out. Let whoever has cares find his way home. There is a wistful trio music Mahler might have heard in a Viennese cafe, fuller of cares than joy. And then the Landler resumes. The third movement used to upset audiences, and even today, it's puzzling to those hearing it for the first time. What are we to make of this odd assortment, a sad and distorted version of Frère Jacques, Mahler knew it as Bruder Martin, a lumbering funeral march, some cheap dance band music remembered by pairs of oboes and trumpets over the beat of the bass drum, and the ethereal closing pages of the Wayfarer songs, Heaven and Earth, all rolled into one. Mahler's only clue is the Hunter's Funeral Procession, a woodcut made earlier in the century by Moritz von Schwind, a friend of Schubert, which he claimed was the inspiration for this music. About the vulgar band music, Mahler leaves no doubt. With parody, he writes at the top of the page, just as the drum and cymbal join in. The finale begins with a flash of lightning from a dark cloud. Mahler tells us it is simply the cry of a wounded heart. This is music in search of victory, and Mahler retreats from battle several times before he triumphs. The first stop allows us to savor some lovely pastoral music we would recognize if Mahler hadn't ultimately chosen to omit his original second movement, Blumina. Later, we return to the fields of the first movement, but we're no longer setting off on a journey. We're headed straight for the triumph that Mahler's wayfarer couldn't achieve. This time, success is swift and unequivocal, and when the horns are asked to play out, even over the trumpets, victory is won. A note on performance tradition. At these performances, the famous Frère Jacques tune that opens the third movement is played by muted solo double bass, as had long been the convention. However, some recent Chicago symphony performances followed the critical edition of the symphony, published in 1992, which dictates that the melody should be played by the entire section, muted, claiming that this was Mahler's original intention. Over time, many Mahler authorities have flatly rejected this interpretation. The evidence favoring the solo instrument is convincing, including the review of the first Vienna Philharmonic performance in November 1900, written by Brahms' friend Max Kalbach, which says the third movement opened with a double bass solo. 
Bruno Walter, the conductor most closely associated with the composer, he became Mahler's assistant at the Vienna Court Opera in 1901 and later led the premieres of Das Lied von der Erde and the Ninth Symphony, used a solo double bass in all seven of the recordings of the symphony he made between 1939, the first ever recording of Symphony No. 1, and 1961. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 1. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.